have a doctrinal beef with Pentecostalism, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe the Holy Spirit does exist. Uh, maybe it is all true, but I can't live my life according to those ideas or that doctrine. It, I just can't find a way to care enough about it. Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm Pamela Hensley, and on the show today, Michelle Siva talks about speaking in tongues, getting slain in the spirit, and why religion is perfectly logical in terms of evolution. Michelle became a lapsed Pentecostal before she got her PhD from Harvard and began teaching a class on religion in the Harvard College writing program. She left the faith not because she disagreed with the doctrine or felt bothered by contradictions, but because she felt herself more moved by Middlemarch than the Bible. In 2018, after attending one of the BAMP Center's writing workshops, she started working on the stories that became the collection End Times. She drew on her own background to grapple with a culture she still didn't understand. She joins me in the studio today. Hello, Michelle Siva. Hi. You were raised Pentecostal. What exactly were the beliefs you grew up with? Well, I believed, I certainly believed in hell. I believed in demons, right? So uh, a fairly widespread view among at least some Pentecostals is that uh, things like addiction and ADHD are demonic in origin. Um, so that was, yeah, that was kind of the worldview I grew up with. Pentecostalism is a very expressive form of Christianity, so it's defined by practices like speaking in tongues uh, or getting slain in the spirit. That's when uh, classically in the, a televangelist might you know, touch someone on the forehead and they kind of collapse back. Uh, into a sort of stupor, and um, that's when the idea is that the Holy Spirit's moving. So Pentecostalism is a form of Christianity that's that really focuses on the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's um, it values spontaneity rather than ritual, um, and yeah, speaking in tongues is really central. So it's supposed to be this like divine language that sometimes visits people when they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. Is it the same as born-again Christians? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So born-again would be uh, a much wider umbrella term for a bunch of different kinds of Christians, including Baptists, um, some Methodists, yeah, um, and Pentecostals are are in the mix. So these are different, these all fall under born-again? Under born-again, under evangelical, yeah, those are... What is the difference, just the, the speaking in tongues part? Yeah, so not, to my knowledge, uh, not all Baptists or Methodists dig speaking in tongues, which is, you know, you're, to someone who's, who doesn't get it or isn't in it, it just sounds like babble. It sounds like nonsense, right? Um, but uh, so, so it's seen as a bit fringy by some born-again or evangelical Christians who uh, are maybe a bit more rational in their expressions of faith. And, I mean, when that happens, are you, you're not in control of what you're saying or you're just 
How does it work? You know, so I was never very good at speaking in tongues, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which may account for why I ended up leaving the faith. That wasn't the only reason, of course. But yeah, I, I remember I might have been 12 or 13, and in Sunday school one morning, our Sunday school teacher encouraged us to just have a go at speaking in tongues. And uh, we were all trying it out, and it just it just felt like I was babbling. I didn't feel like I was really being inspired. Um, I, 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 get, I really tried hard, but it's, I don't think this is something you can, you know, uh, I was a bit of a, an overachiever, but I don't think this is something you can really like achieve through effort, right? Mm. Either mm. it's something that you find inspiring and moving and are more susceptible to and likely to experience. But um, I think, yeah, for me, it I don't know. Um, it wasn't a form of expression that I found true. compelling. But having been raised within that culture, I just accepted it as something that um, many people did. Mm. And they found it useful. They found it edifying. I didn't judge them for that. But it's just something that I wasn't able to do. Where did you live? Was it uh, an ordinary neighborhood or were you in a, more of a secluded community? I, I, so I grew up in Toronto. I grew up in suburban Toronto, East York. I went okay. to school in North Sounds York. pretty regular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, um, it kind of in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it felt like kind of nowhere. <laughs> you went to public school. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't go to a Christian school, right? So overwhelmingly, my friends were secular. I don't know if that played a role in my eventually leaving the faith. Mm-hmm. And you recognized that, that, that they had a different belief than you. Yeah. And I was pretty, I wasn't a good Christian in that I did not evangelize to my secular friends, except once when I cornered my best friend because I was terrified she was going to hell and suddenly started talking about Jesus to her. And uh, she very kindly, because she subsequently told me she saw I I looked very worried. She was like, okay, let's do the Jesus prayer together. We did the Jesus prayer together. And I was like, phew, okay, she's not, she's not going to hell. But we never talked about Jesus after that. (laughs) Your best friend. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't want to be responsible for my best friend growing to hell. So you were happy, and your parents, what were your parents like? Um, so I got the Pentecostalism, <laughs> make it sound like an illness. Uh, I got the Pentecostalism from my mom. I grew up with my mother, so I always lived with my mother. My, my parents weren't married. They never married. Um, I'm, I'm a love child of the 70s. and um, But I always had contact with my father. I saw my father every week. He's not Pentecostal. He wasn't. Um, he passed away a couple years ago. He was, um, he was Italian. He, so he was raised Catholic, culturally Catholic. Mm-hmm. And my mom, you know, my mom found Pentecostalism as an immigrant, as a single mother who was struggling. She was low income. And... Um, Kind of classically for the 80s, she was watching TV one day and she came across a Christian program and um, she was initially skeptical, but uh, ultimately called the 1-800 number on the screen and began this journey with Jesus. And I I joined her. (laughs) She invited you to join her. Yeah, it was just part of the culture of the household. Right. Do you have brothers and sisters? I don't. So it was the two of you. Yeah. Okay, and you you became devout, would you say? Well, she converted when I was about four. So it was just, like I said, it was just the culture of the household. I didn't, I didn't really question it. I didn't question it at that age. No, of course yeah. not. Yeah. So you accepted uh, uh, your mother's faith. 
until you didn't, until mm. a point where you didn't. So how did that happen? Yeah, that was a very quiet departure. It happened, honestly, I was a pretty compliant child. I saw that my mother was really, like, she was stressed out. It's not easy to be a single mother, not have much money. So uh, it happened when I left Toronto and came to Montreal for my undergrad studies. And when I, just before I left Toronto, I'd professed the intention to find a church in Montreal. But then I got here and... There were just much, there were many more important <laughs> and interesting things to do than find a church in Montreal. So I kept putting it off, and then I realized that that I, I just didn't want to find a church here. Yeah, I have a very, I have a very um, kind of ordinary but um, thrilling memory of my first Sunday in Montreal, late August. It's 10, 30, 11 in the morning when I've always been in church, and I'm just going for a walk on Prince Arthur, and it feels like the most luxurious, self-indulgent thing <laughs> I could do, go for this uh, very ordinary walk. And I realized, yeah, I just want to walk on Sunday morning, explore this new city. So this was not a sudden decision. This was just something that slowly percolated through you and you kind of let go loosely. Yeah, I was trying really hard as a teenager. I was trying really hard in high school to to feel the feels. Pentecostalism is a religion that really emphasizes feeling, right? You feel the spirit moving through you. You are thrilled by Christ's sacrifice for humankind, thrilled and grateful, right? And I just could never feel that pitch of emotion about, um, yeah, about the doctrine, about the sermons. I wondered if it was the Bible or the interpretation of the Bible or something else. I didn't really have a problem with the Bible. It's a it's an interesting document of human civilization. I found the sermons somewhat simplistic and repetitive. And when I was in high school, it was when I also got turned on to literary fiction. And that stuff moved me way more than the sermons I was hearing, right? To read a poem by Emily Dickinson or to read an Alice Monroe story or Middlemarch. There was just an acknowledgement there of of human complexity and messiness that I found really moving in a way that I didn't find those Sunday morning sermons moving. And that's I, that was, I think, the fundamental reason I left Pentecostalism. I don't have a doctrinal beef with Pentecostalism. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe the Holy Spirit does exist. Uh, maybe it is all true. But I can't live my life according to those ideas or that doctrine. It, I just can't find a way to care enough about it. So I think of my departure from Pentecostalism as that my reasons were fundamentally aesthetic rather than some like awakening to reason and right, right you know that and that, that sudden part of the clarity. I, I turned to writing creatively is that I saw a lot of these narratives of losing faith were about like I started reading the Bible more carefully and I saw all these contradictions or you know my pastor was a hypocrite right these more kind of rational critiques which are fair. But those weren't my reasons for leaving. Um, they were. It was more about does this does this practice does this culture move me? And ultimately, it was literary culture that moved me more than Pentecostal culture. Wow. 
That's mm. says a lot about mm. literature, really, that it moves you like that. Yeah, and it really, it really didn't even feel like a choice, right? Mm. It just feels temperamental to me. I sometimes wonder. Uh, you know, I'm an introvert. Pentecostalism is a quite extroverted religion. Maybe That's just true. temperamentally, yeah. it wasn't a good match for me. I don't even see myself as having made the quote unquote right decision, right? I, I just, I, at a certain point, I had to be honest about how I was going to live my life. And I don't mean to be glib in this analogy, but the analogy that has come to mind for me is akin to sexual orientation. It's like you don't choose what you desire, who you desire, right? And I didn't desire that form of Christianity. I desired literature. You weren't interested in perhaps seeing Christianity through another faith or through one of those other... I've been to a Quaker service. I feel like if I could ever get back into Christianity, it would be a more quiet, introverted <laughs> practice like the Quakers where they sit quietly together. And they're also waiting for the spirit to move, but they do so in um, a way that feels more meditative. Um, and the expression when they do speak up is something that other people can follow. Sounds like something that people at the head of this church should recognize that not everybody is an extrovert and that they're losing people because of this reason and not because of the doctrine. Well, it's funny. So there were, as far as I could see, there were plenty of introverts at the Pentecostal church that I attended. So not everybody was speaking in tongues and getting slain in the spirit and even raising their hands when they praised the Lord. Um, you know, often you'd have a couple, and it would seem to me that one of the spouses was a little more reticent than the other. And I, I would sometimes wonder, oh, is, is, the, other, is the quieter one just kind of going along? Or, uh, But I, I don't know. They probably did have a, a sincere faith or, you know, need for need for Pentecostalism. But also Pentecostalism is one of the fastest growing religions in the world today. It's hugely popular in Brazil, um, in parts of Africa, I believe Uganda. Um, it's, it's popular among, um, from what I've read, I haven't, I haven't read deeply on this subject, but it's popular among um, people in like the working class or the working poor who aspire to be more middle class and have more sort of or orderly regulated lives. That's the case in Brazil, at least, as, as far as I've read, yeah, yeah. I imagine you had to tell your mother at some point that you changed your... <laughs> how, how did that go? How did she receive the news? Uh, to give her credit, she's never been pushy about it. She accepted it. Her relationship with me is really important to her. I know she prays for me. That's fine. As long as I'm not around, she can pray for me all she wants. I know she would be happy if I returned to the faith. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're not, you know, we're not having theological debates when we hang out. She's not trying to persuade me to go back to the faith. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, yeah, I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful that when I started writing about evangelical culture, I felt like she gave me permission to just write whatever um, I had noticed and thought was worth exploring. I don't know, if, she, if she'd been overtly disapproving of my writing when she read it, I probably would have continued to write, but it was really nice to know that she just thought I should keep doing what I, what I needed to do. 
And you didn't feel her over your shoulder or anything like no, that? No, not at all. Also, she's not a reader of literary fiction. She's not a reader of fiction, period. So I'm just working in this domain that's as alien to her as Pentecostalism is to me now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Presumably you lost some friends, though, or a community, You I know, it's a funny thing. I never—my closest friends were always secular. They were my high school friends. I had, I had one friend in the church, and she was also kind of—we were both kind of marginal. <laughs> marginal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we weren't, you know, we weren't the cool kids in youth group, and I didn't even go to youth group very much. You're talking about how Pentecostalism is growing in certain places around the world. Well, why do you think religion still holds such a strong—has exerts such a strong hold on so many people? Hmm. That's a big question. Yeah, it is. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's all right. It's an interesting question. Hmm. The Pentecostalism that I experienced did offer a certain degree of kind of structure and meaning and community, and we all need those things. Um, but, you know, and that's a pretty um, easy answer. The only other thought that comes to mind is that... It's kind of the logic of evolution. You know, I'm, I'm surprised that people like Richard Dawkins are surprised that religion is still around because the logic of evolution is infinite variation, infinite variety. And, yeah, so it makes sense that there's going to be some people who don't believe, who don't have a faith, who are atheists. There are going to be a bunch of folks in between. And then there are going to be a f- bunch of folks who, who find religion useful and compelling. And um, I don't see that variety ever going away. Um, I imagine it'll mutate, it'll change, there will be new forms of religious belief that emerge. So you see it the same way you would see physical traits mutating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You came to Montreal, you did an undergrad at McGill. Yeah. Did you stay for a master's or did you go to Harvard after that? I left for a a master's PhD program at Harvard after McGill, yeah, after my undergrad. And tell me about that. How was that? It was, uh, I mean, I, I'm just absurdly lucky to have ended up at Harvard, which is a school that, you know, has an obscene amount of wealth and resources that I was able to, to benefit from. It was, I was surprised. I expected to be intimidated, but I felt like I was able to keep up. Um, and because, you know, because Harvard does have the money, everyone in my cohort was getting the same funding. And so it wasn't competitive. It was actually a quite supportive environment, right? When everyone has the same amount of resources, people tend to get along. And we were supportive of each other. Everyone had their own project, their own set of interests. Nobody was especially territorial. I was surprised that the friends I fell in with were really funny people. You know, I expected people to be smart, but I didn't expect them to be funny. They're not Uh, mutually exclusive. No, no, no. no. They often go together. They often go together. And uh, so you studied literature, yeah, English, English literature. literature. Yeah, yeah. I was a 18th or I studied 18th century literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that feels like another life now, kind of like Pentecostalism, <laughs> also <laughs> another life. <laughs> you just keep moving on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So were your your ambitions to go into academia? Yeah, I thought I would be an English professor. I wanted to, through my 20s, I wanted to stay in contact with literature. That was really important to me. And I'm also the child of immigrants, so I wasn't going to 
declare myself an artist in my 20s. I wanted to have a salary, some kind of income. So being an academic seemed like a good way to maintain the contact with literature that I needed and also to make enough money to live. But I realized as I was finishing up my dissertation that academic research is highly specialized and I don't have the brain of a specialist. I'm really a generalist and also I was starting to feel the pressure, the craving to write creatively. And I didn't think I could both produce specialized academic research and have a, an active creative life. So, and I wasn't also, I just wasn't interested in producing research for the rest of my life. So, I would have textbooks. been a terrible professor. <laughs> Is it after that that you went to the Banff Center? So that was a fair bit after uh, I graduated from Harvard in 2007. And then I stayed on for five years teaching in the freshman writing program. And that gave me some time to figure out what I was going to do next because I really didn't know. I knew that I missed Montreal. And so eventually I would find out, okay, there's this college system called CJEP. I'm a generalist. Maybe I can teach within that system. You're at Dawson now, are yeah. you? Yep. Yeah, I'm at Dawson. Um, so, yeah, it was in during my time during my time teaching in the freshman writing program that I finally took my first – I took my first creative writing course. <laughs> I took my first creative writing course in, in 2011 when I was already in my 30s. And you already had a PhD in literature. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was, um, it was funny because I was in a course. I had a PhD in literature. I was in a course mostly with undergraduates. Uh, there, there were a couple people from the law school in there. But it was an exhilarating experience. I loved it. I also realized how little I knew about creative writing it was great that I'd had the exposure to literature all through my 20s and also my teens to some extent. But it's just a very different business writing creatively than writing academically about literature. So I had a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. That helped me realize that. And I subsequently took a few more, maybe four or five workshops that helped. Um, and that, yeah, that was all, all pre-BAMF. Um, yeah, BAMF happened, what, in 2018 when... Um, when I already had the book project, the End Times book project, which really got started at early 2017. All right, let's talk about the book then. Sure, sure. End Times is a collection of short stories involving believers and non-believers. It came out this spring. Why did you write this book? Well, I wrote it, oh yeah, why did I write this book? I, I started in 2017. Uh, as I mentioned, after uh, an argument about Trump with, with my mom, who was a fan of him at the time. She no longer is. So I was having the argument that so many people everywhere right, were having yeah. within their families. It was pretty uh, common at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And after that argument, I, I realized how I felt a lot of contempt for her opinion, but also for her. And I was really unsettled by that because contempt is not an emotion I really want to, to feel towards my mother. So I, I, I wrote the story to find other ways of seeing a Trump supporter. Um, but that, that ended up being a very small kernel within the story as a whole. But yeah, it started, uh, it started with End Times, the story, which also ended up holding kind of the kernels of a couple other stories in the collection. So uh, the mother in End Times, one of her, do her daughter, one of her kids, 
is a management consultant, and I was kind of intrigued by that uh, that line of work. You do have, uh, like I used to be a management consultant. Yeah, I noticed that in your bio. I wonder what you think of uh, the story oh, I, with a management consultant. Honestly, I, I thought it must have been based on someone you knew. It was very well done. Okay, I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad it felt plausible. Yeah, I have a couple of friends who worked for McKinsey, so I, I interviewed them, got some, got some stories. Uh, a number of your characters repeat in, hmm. in, like Beth, I think, she repeats, doesn't she? Yeah, she and Esther come up in two stories. It's interesting yes. that just that there's that flow or that it weaves through from one to another, like you're almost not finished with them. Yeah, that was fun. So I wrote the Bible camp story when they're tweens, when they're 12 years old. Long Fearfully ago, and wonderfully. Fearfully and wonderfully, yeah. I wrote that, in fact, I wrote that around the time of my first workshop, but the version that's in the book is so different from that initial workshop version that, you know, different title, different, lots of different things. Um, so yeah, the Bible camp story was the one where it felt like, okay, this, this story feels kind of alive. It feels like it has legs. And, and yeah, as I was writing the manuscript for the book, I, I wanted to go back to Esther and Beth you know, when they're around 40 and and see kind of what's changed and where they've landed at that point in their lives. Very different places. Yeah. 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 In that story, Fearfully and Wonderfully, uh, some kids at a Bible camp go to the train tracks at midnight and the experience of feeling, I guess it's the rush of the train going past them, it enthralls the narrator, Beth. Mm. And, the, and she says later that it planted in her one seed of the end of my faith. How so? Yeah, I think part of what Beth is experiencing there is just the thrill of the material world, right? Uh, reality that can be accounted for via physics and just sensory experience. And that, um, as she'll go on to say in For What Shall It Profit a Man, or what, does she go on to say this? I'm pretty sure she goes on to think it. I don't know if I actually made it onto the page. In fact, Ivan goes on to say this because uh, he's another character who loses his faith in Matsutake. Um, yeah, um, that the need for another dimension, like the spiritual, the divine, just felt superfluous because there's already so much going on in the material world. That can it's be explained or just no, that, that exists? That, that can be experienced aesthetically. Okay. Um, and it's just already so rich. Um, yeah, it just feels like enough. It feels like plenty. It feels there's already an abundance of of reality without spirits and heaven and hell. That's how. Yeah, that's that's how Beth and I think also Ivan feel. And there's uh, there's some overlap with my own own sensibility <laughs> there. <laughs> in um, in history of prayer. Possibly Matsutake also. Uh, there are characters from the former Czechoslovakia, which mm. I imagine your mother is from. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they talk of belief in communism kind of in the same breath as prayer. I, I wondered if you could describe your thoughts on like the parallels and contrast between devotion to political ideology and, and to religious faith. Hmm. Well, my understanding of them is that they were always skeptical of communism even when they were in it, which is part of why they left. But by contrast, evangelical Christianity felt a lot more useful, even less coercive, and just made more sense for how they wanted to live their their day-to-day -day lives. I mean, there is a way that uh, when you find Jesus, when you become born again, you do, as I mentioned, live this more orderly life. I did 
it wasn't clear whether he was using, like Ivan was using it as a reason why he maybe was doubting. Because if he had believed in communism, there was a fraud in that promise. Right. I think Ivan's experience, alas, yet again, is similar to my own in that he is surprised to realize that he's not as moved by um, by the faith that was once very important to him when he was uh, struggling, when he was a newer immigrant. Uh, he started reading books of physics, like popular, you know, trade paperbacks uh, about physics and... Um, He's retired. His life is less stressful in that regard. I am interested in these moments when uh, our sensibility changes and we kind of don't even choose it. It's just something that, that we didn't see coming and then it happens. And what do we do? What do we do about that? What do we do in the aftermath of that? And he, he, he has a, a wife who's still very devout, so he just kind of goes along with... with um, he keeps living as if he had a sincere, a sincere faith, mm-hmm. which is a conflict for him, for sure. Mm. It's yeah. tricky. He still yeah. enjoys reading the Bible, yeah. right? It's, um, but yeah, it's also you know, even though I've never been married, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by the compromises people make within a marriage. And he's been married for a long time to his wife, whom he still loves very much, and he loves the life they've built together, and. So small sacrifice. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Okay. In um, your story called The Righteous Engulfed by His Love, uh, a gay man, an atheist, seeks to expose a gay pastor. And we see the world as a set of dichotomies, or at least I did when I was reading it. Shame versus self-acceptance, um, fulfillment versus emptiness. Is this a comment on on society or on secular assumptions of religious culture, or what are you saying with the with this story? Well, I do find something simplistic or a bit simplistic about Ben. This is the atheist guy's um, some of his some of his ideas that. Um, that perhaps aren't so different. I'm interested in moments when um, secularism can be just as simplistic as uh, sort of fundamentalist Christianity. These, these, yeah, these dichotomies, these black and white ways of thinking. Though in a lot of ways, you know, I'm there's overlap between Ben and myself because I was intrigued, but also unsettled by the scenario of someone who is both uh, committed evangelical and gay, because I found myself wondering, yeah, how could you be gay? Like, how do you negotiate those two aspects of your identity, right? They're not gonna, they're not gonna line up tidally. There's going to be a tension there. In the Pentecostal church, it's simply not accepted? There may be a few Pentecostal churches that are very progressive. I've heard of one in LA, but for the most part, Pentecostalism is, is is homophobic, yeah, yeah, and even with a megachurch culture within the Pentecostal tradition like Hillsong, it's more of a like don't ask, don't tell, or you know we just won't. Okay, you do what you need to do privately. We love you still, we welcome you, um, but we're never actually going to to support your your gay identity. So. Um, yeah, I was intrigued by Carl, and I don't think the story kind of solves the mystery of Carl. I think it just 
asked me anyway when I was writing it to spend some time with someone like Carl and take him seriously and not... Um, Carl being the pastor. Oh, sorry. No, Carl is the, the boyfriend. They've been dating for three months, right, so yes. they're, they're lovers. So Ben and Carl are... Um, our lovers, and, and Carl is um, both evangelical and gay, but he's very discreet about being gay. He's never been to a pride parade, right? And so Ben has this idea that, well, you know, this is a problem that Carl is secretly a self-hating gay man, and this problem needs to be fixed. And um, and then he has the intuition that, in fact, the pastor of this mega church that Carl attends, which is very much in the Hillsong, Hillsong mode mm-hmm. of, you know, this, like, hip, cool... Um, non-judgy-seeming mm-hmm. pastor, um, that he himself is, if not gay, then bisexual, and that there is just an aspect of himself that he's not acknowledging, and thus he's inauthentic. And Pentecostalism is a culture that really emphasizes the importance of authenticity. So, yeah, um, just the urge to find and expose hypocrisy. Um, I was kind of exploring where that takes people and also the limitations of that, that attitude. Because it does, I don't know, it feels, I'm sure I have hypocrisies. I certainly have inconsistencies. We all have hypocrisies, right? Right? (laughs) It's human. Yeah. Yeah. In Miriam Taves' Women Talking, which was adapted to film by Sarah Pauly, women in a Mennonite community, I'm sure you know it, who have suffered Mm -hmm, terrible abuse mm -hmm. at the hands of men in the same community, struggle to resolve what feels like conflicting issues the freedom to practice their faith, to think freely, and to keep their children safe. What, in your opinion, is the way forward for any community where there are these conflicts? I really don't know. I'm sorry, it's not a fair (laughs) question again, is it? No, no, no. It's a really interesting question. I think my stories are more in a Chekhovian vein where they are trying to explore a predicament or a problem and render it as precisely as possible without without offering a solution. All right, well, let's talk about your, your process maybe a little bit more. You're a debut writer. Um, how difficult was it to find a publisher for a collection of short stories? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't easy. And at the same time, I'm surprised. I'm still surprised that the manuscript found a publisher. Very relieved. How long did it take? Um, the manuscript was done in 2020. So, yeah, I was writing in earnest between 2017 and 2020. Then I had something ready. And I started sending it out. I sent it, I don't know to how many places exactly, half a dozen. I didn't send it to that many places. And Freehand was the last place I sent it to. And I, I had the feeling if they didn't take it, I didn't think I didn't think any of the other indie publishers in Canada would take it. Because my writing is not very formally experimental. It's pretty standard issue realism. And my impression is that... Um, Smaller publishers, you know, God bless them, tend to publish more experimental writing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really, um, really thrilled that that Freehand decided to take a chance on it and put some time and money into that's the manuscript. Good news. Yeah, that's good news for uh, <laughs> for debut authors. Did you have any Pentecostal readers act as beta readers? Good question. I didn't. <laughs> I, I'm just presumptuously relying on my own memories of Pentecostal culture and periodically doing some online research to get a sense of what's going on with Pentecostalism more recently. 
Um, I do hope that, you know, listen, most of the readers of my book have been secular, but I do hope that if someone who's a very devout, even a fundamentalist Pentecostal, reads my book, they'll see that even if I'm not endorsing Pentecostalism, that I take it seriously. You know, I take the faith seriously. My motive is not satiric in any way. I'm trying to be as precise as possible to capture aspects of this culture and also aspects of secular culture. And I had a, a couple of really nice conversations with people I don't know who had their own faith struggles. Mm. And I heard from, um, you know, one of the more surprising moving uh, notes, emails that I got was from a friend of a friend who's who's herself Muslim and grew up within a Muslim tradition. And she found that the stories really resonated with her own experience, especially the parent-child stuff. So... Yeah, this isn't um, a collection just for people who are interested in evangelical culture as such. It's, you know, these are stories about parent-child relationships, romantic relationships, work, It applies to a lot. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) It's about people, but within, you know, broadly within this framework of evangelical culture, people who who are close to someone or used to be within evangelical culture themselves. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me how it worked with the editors? Did you, did you, what was the process back and forth? Yeah, they were really helpful in thinking about, um, getting me to think about the order of the stories. Oh, okay. So my strategy when I sound out the manuscript was just to clump the stories I thought were the strongest at the beginning. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> Apparently like sound. that's not the way to go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> tell us more. <laughs> um, and... Um, uh, Naomi Naomi Lewis, the, the main editor that I was working with, she suggested that we reorder the stories. Also, we ended up dropping one of the stories, and I wrote I wrote a new story. This was so I'd written, I wrote, yeah, I was sending out the manuscript already in 2020, but late 2020, and I figured a story collection with a title and a times should have a pandemic story in there. If we're gonna, if we're thinking about the apocalypse, about the end of the world, it would be an oversight not to include something related to the pandemic. But that one wasn't quite a fit, so I ended up writing a history of prayer, which does touch on aspects of the pandemic, right. but isn't primarily about that. I didn't I didn't anticipate that people would be sick of pandemic stories by 2023. <laughs> oh, they're but sick fortunately, of them. <laughs> fortunately, uh, Naomi was uh, shrewd enough to So what did, that. what strategy did they recommend? Um, well, listen, Naomi gave me a lot of freedom and she just said this this one pandemic and it wasn't actually because it's a pandemic story that wasn't the issue. It was that it's about um, someone raised within the Catholic tradition. So it was very much a case of one of these things is not like the others. Let's get another story connected in some way to evangelical culture in there instead. Set the tone at the start. Is that the idea then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or just have a certain thematic continuity across the stories. Books can illuminate certain topics, and after reading yours, presumably you'd like people to think about faith, at least, is a, a main topic. What books have changed your views on different topics? Hmm. I'm a big fan of—well, one, one book or one story that I realized was really influencing my stories, especially the first one and times, is Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, where Classic. you have yeah, you have this very kind of rebarbative protagonist. She's bigoted, she's she's just small-minded and annoying in so many ways and is convinced she's a good person. Um, and she makes so many disastrous mistakes. 
and yet at the end, there's this moment of grace. And, um, and so that's been, that's been a big influence, um, or that was an influence I wasn't even aware of when I was writing the story, just after the fact, when I read it, I was like, oh, this is a bit like, this is a bit like Flannery O'Connor. Um, Alice Monroe is another kind of, you know, I feel like really? Alice Monroe, yeah, she's like, she is the writer who launched a thousand, like 10,000 yes. other <laughs> writers, people writing. I mean, writers aren't just people who are published, like anyone who has a writing practice. I feel like, you know, Alice Monroe has done a lot of work there. And um, I, there's, there's just a sense of like perplexity and wonder that suffuses a lot of her stories that I think has, um, that my stories are also under the, the influence of. Um, and also, you know, it, she's, she is also very much influenced by Flannery O'Connor, these, these, you know, these difficult to like protagonists mm-hmm. who are still fascinating and you understand, you come to understand a bit why they like are the way they them. are. Yeah. 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 Are you still writing stories or are you writing anything else? I am doing a lot of reading these days. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm fundamentally a reader. And at a certain point in my reading life, it felt like it wasn't enough just to read. So these days I've been reading and taking some notes. But I'm not, um, I, I'm not saying I would recommend this to anyone. But I'm not at the moment putting pressure on myself to write. I'm just kind of collecting, reading, uh, seeing, what's, seeing what's out there. Yeah. Enjoying. Yeah. 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 Um, I recently read Christine Smallwood's uh, The Life of the Mind, which is like an academic. It's about an adjunct who's she's recovering from a miscarriage, and she just has this kind of chaotic, rather abject life, but it's also hilarious. Um, yeah, I've been reading. I also read Ella Fatman's uh, Either Or recently. So I've been reading books connected to academic culture. I don't know if that's something that I might... I might try to write about. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, Michelle, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. This was really fun. Thanks, Pamela. That was Michelle Sibba, debut author of End Times. Find her book at Distilled Booksellers and other fine bookstores everywhere. This episode concludes season one of How I Wrote This. I hope you enjoyed the show and have followed us on Instagram and your favorite podcast app. I'd like to thank all my guests for such excellent conversations and Tyler Rauman for his music and production support. Thanks also to Distill Booksellers for their sponsorship, the Community Digital Arts Hub for the studio, and the Quebec Writers Federation for promotional support. How I Wrote This will return with season two this winter featuring writers based in or with a connection to Berlin. In the meantime, happy holidays and happy new year from how I wrote this.